This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, $20 per gallon, how the inevitable rise in price of gasoline will change our lives for the better. Our guest today, Christopher Steiner, looks at how this radical change will usher in some new and very promising aspects for our society. Steiner is a civil engineer and a staff writer at Forbes who reports on energy, technology, and innovation. Before his first reporting job at the Chicago Tribune, Steiner worked as a civil environmental engineer in San Francisco and Park City, Utah. Christopher Steiner, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Real good. Uh, so, so have you paying twenty dollars for gasoline yet? No, have not. <laughs> uh, it's, it's only about three bucks here in three Chicago bucks? right now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and, oh, just just to start off, we just read a story on the on the speculators from last uh, last year who were were jacking up the price of gasoline even though the price was was uh, dropping is that is that also is that going to play into this twenty dollar as we keep rising up uh, a lot well you know i I think uh, the government going after the speculators I think that's a bit of a populist movement certainly uh, speculators have played a large role you know the guys who are trading on places like the the NYMEX and the London Board of Trade who are trading futures in oil uh, they affect the price swings day to day, and they definitely had a role in the wild volatility that we've seen in gas prices during the last two or three years. That said, uh, the price it, things would go up no matter what, speculators or not. Now we might be able to remove some of the volatility that those markets create, but I think uh, we all realize, and what, what, what's really behind the speculators' calculus here is that. Uh, there's more people who want oil than there is oil. And that problem is only going to be exacerbated as the years go on here. Now say that again. More people own oil than there is oil. No, more people that want oil oh, than there oil. is I'm oil. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and that's not a very eloquent sentence, but, I mean, my, my point is that, you know, right now we're, we pump about 85 million uh, barrels per day out of the earth. And we've been in that neighborhood for over 10 years. And there have been no giant fines since then. And, in fact, most of the giant fields that supply more than 50% of the world's oil, there's only about, there's about 15 fields that do that, uh, the, most of those are already in decline. Now, it's a slow decline. That's the good news. I mean, this is going to be a slow tapering of oil supplies. But while you have a slow tapering of oil supplies, as the decades wore on here, you have this rising global middle class, you know, right now, there's a billion people on the globe who live basically American-style lives. By 2030 or 2040, there's going to be about 3 billion people living American-style lives. So you're tripling the amount of people who use oil like we use it, yet we're not going to have any more oil. So that's economics 101. Uh, You know, supply is going down, demand is going up, the price is going to go up. What I understand is that the, that the fields that you were just uh, alluding to, the major fields, mm-hmm. most of them, if not all of them, were pretty much discovered and tapped into in the 60s and early 70s. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, so that's you know, 30 years where we really haven't found – I mean, there may be a few fields that they've discovered right. in the – right. very few. 
it's so often too when people talk about oil, they're just thinking about gasoline and cars, and they're not putting into into the equation plastics. I'm sitting here in, in the studio at KUCI, and I'm surrounded by oil essentially because I've I've got CD cases everywhere, mm-hmm. thousands of CD all cases. all the equipment that in here that has plastic parts in it and that's just a huge equation and that seems to be increasing too it's not just automobile consumption am i right about that just oh no you're absolutely right i mean uh we import uh 20 million barrels we don't import we use 20 million barrels of oil a day in the united states and of that only about half of it makes it into our cars gas tanks uh the other half goes in all sorts of things you know from making asphalt to jet fuel to you know when you if you wherever you're sitting right now wherever you are you're surrounded by petroleum products you know your your office chair uh, the carpet on the floor is made out of you know polyester uh, some type of you know petroleum derived fiber the paint on the walls et cetera et cetera I mean it's really amazing uh, the kind of I mean it, it it has built the current world in more ways than one. Uh-huh. So when you're saying uh, uh, American lifestyle, that that's a huge part of it. It's not just the ability to <laughs> to, to get in a car, to buy a right. to buy a car in India. Right. We're we're speaking with Christopher Steiner. The book is twenty dollars per gallon. And you just talked about airline fuel. Yeah. I, I, I noticed in your book you, you spoke a, a, a bit about that. Can you? Tell us about what's in store for the airline companies. Well, in, in the book, uh, as you know, in Chapter 8, Chapter $8, yeah. uh, and, and that, I felt that $8, you know, according to uh, a lot of people I talked with in the airline industry and economists, feel that that's a real, really a breaking point, that price of gas for yeah. the airline industry as we know it. But, you know, as it turns out, we, we may see some of these airlines go under even before then just because uh, the uh, people aren't flying right now at the rates they were before because of the economic malaise we find ourselves in. But, uh, I mean, basically what it comes down to is last summer when gas was $4 a gallon across most of the country uh, and, you know, jet fuel was up in the same range, most of our airlines in the United States were spending 40% of their operating costs on jet fuel. 40% of their operating costs were going to jet fuel. They, they built their models, they built their networks, these airlines, assuming about 10% of operating costs going toward uh, jet Ooh. fuel. So, yeah, they, that's not a sustainable thing. And then once, once you get to 6 or $8, you start talking about 60% of operating costs going toward that. And, you know, at some point, uh, most of our legacy airlines – are going to go out of business. And when I say legacy, I mean United, American, Delta, Northwest. Uh, they'll all disappear. Our domestic capacity, you know, at, at a point of $8 per gallon, will probably be cut in half, if not smaller. But that will allow the survivors, who will probably be JetBlue and Southwest, to charge a lot more for a flight. And that's what they're going to need to do to survive. And because you'll have cut out people who, say, go to the West Coast at the drop of a hat for $300 from the East Coast because, you know, we get in, we can get in planes now like almost like we get in cabs. You know, it's so cheap. You know, for an upper-middle-class person, $300 isn't a big deal, and it gets you across the country in four hours. So, uh, you know, in the future, I think we're not going to use planes as often just because it's going to be more of a special occasion. It might be $1,000 to go coast-to-coast. And as I said, you'll see JetBlue and Southwest survive. You'll probably see Continental hold on is the lone United States – carrier of international consequence. You know, they'll handle most of our uh, international traffic from here to Europe and Asia, just because they are in much better shape 
than the other international carriers out of the United States. And, and a lot of this has to do as well with the uh, the age of the uh, fleets that these, mm-hmm. these companies have. And they're, so there's right. a turnover, a, a right. attrition rate. So yes. some of these are better positioned. I did, Just in doing the research for our interview today, um, yesterday uh, there was an article that came out in the Independent uh, of, of Great Britain, the uh, newspaper there, talking about just the subject that the oil supplies are running out much faster I saw that. Than, than they were even predicting. And they, they did a pretty thorough, it seems to me, a pretty thorough survey of these. Uh, this, so you saw this article as well. I did. I did. And, and you know, it was uh, they, uh, the stimulus for the article was words uh, from the International Energy Agency, it's, which is a non-partisan you know, organization yeah. out of Paris. Yeah. Uh, and, and their head uh, geologist, economist, said that, um, you know, we actually are running out of oil faster than we even thought. And he said, you know, this could really put the clamps on our global economic recovery right now. And and you could, there's been articles in even the Journal and the Times on the last couple of days talking about, you know, oil's been went over $70 recently uh, per barrel. And, uh, you know, people are afraid if it goes much higher, it could uh, stamp out the recovery that we're hopefully in the midst of right now. Right. We've, we've been talking about this subject for a few years now. And, and th- there's been uh, – speculation has been, at least for the people we've spoken with in the past, that uh, that peak oil – was somewhere around 2020, 2018, mm-hmm. 20, maybe 2023. That was sort of the, the range. And then um, we had had others come on and say, there's no, I mean, we've had, we've heard it from others that there is no such thing as peak oil. We've got, we're floating in oil. It'll never happen. We don't have to worry about it. But now the increasing consensus is, is that we're within 10 years, five to 10 years, well, 10 years, according to this article of peak oil, which is about where we were pegging it a few years ago. Sure. So we so once the world is aware of that, then the competition for the oil supply becomes more intense and this is where we get into uh, international conflicts. I mean, this is what the cost we're paying. Right. In addition to all the costs that you've enunciated, we're also paying the cost of increased military activity by us and other countries around the world. Is that mm-hmm. is that a fair statement? I don't know. You know, I think we I think we can hope that uh, fair play and um, the rule of law Role, uh, rules overall in the future. And I think, uh, you know, assuming that, and assuming we're not fighting China for oil, uh, I, you know, because China's very aware of the, of the situation, too, and I think they might even be more aware than we are in general, as far as their government goes. I mean, they are, you know, instituting giant green energy plans. Now, I mean, obviously, they belch coal dust more so than, you know, at a far worse pace than anybody else. But uh, China, you know, they have instituted a nationwide push to get to be the leader in electric cars, to be the leader in wind power. I think they're going to pass us this year in wind power, and they were so far behind us two years ago. It wasn't even funny. Um, but, I mean, so China's very aware of this problem, and I think the stimulus here, you have to understand, even if even if people are thinking about wars over oil, it's, it, it's still a global market. And if, if money rules the day rather than missiles, and let's hope that's the case, the price of gas will go up, and that will cause change yeah. all over the world. I mean, yeah. you know, there's certain, and this is what the book's about, it's yeah. about there's different tipping points at each different price. Different yeah. things in our lives will change. You know, so at $6, certain things happen. At $10, certain things happen. And I think, I think that the price of gas, in the end, is going to be the stimulus, the incentive that capitalism needs to find alternative ways of living, alternative energies, you know, different kinds of mass transit, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, that's the good. One of the uh, great things about this book is it is a roadmap. You're giving us sort of the, this is the scenarios and these are the ways that we can really capitalize on them, change our lives in a very positive way. Uh, and I want to point out too that you didn't just make phone calls to people uh, and ask them their opinions. You actually went out in the field and looked into what was going on in the in the in the world of of oil and oil production. Tell us uh, what prompted you to just sort of throw yourself into this. Uh, well, you know, you you get you get much better stories to tell when you do that. It's it's um, I'm not saying the book was well written. That's that's for a reader to judge. But well, it it's it's a yeah. lot easier to write well when you have great material. Yeah. You know, it's when you only have a couple scraps of things and you're trying to string together a thousand words. That makes it pretty hard to write something you know nicely. Uh, so you know, as a reporter, it's always more fun to get out there, do the work. You know, get your hands a little dirty and, and see what's really going on. And I think, um, I mean, this kind of work convinced me that in the future, you know, there's going to be two kinds of big companies out there. The ones that haven't prepared for higher costs of energy, and, and those companies will ultimately probably fail. And the companies that right now are already thinking about it, already have arms of their company that are solely uh, focused on changing how they do things in a world of more expensive energy. And it, one of those companies I highlight in the book, of course, was UPS. And I rode, I, I worked on a UPS truck for a day. Uh, they gave me a brown uniform and everything. All right. And uh, they, uh, they actually have a series of electric trucks, wholly electric, not even hybrid, that they are figuring out how to use. They, and they look just like a normal UPS truck. Uh, they use two of them in lower Manhattan. And they use these every day. They've been using them for two years. And basically, they're figuring out how to fix these, how to run them, how much it costs to run them, at what point, at what price of gas, they can start bringing these in full bore in places like Chicago and Dallas and L.A. and use them in other cities. So uh, UPS is very well prepared. And this is a company that's completely tethered to the oil spigot, so to speak. And they're aware of the problem. I mean, UPS wouldn't exist without oil. But they are prepared for higher prices. You know, I mean, I think obviously they'll suffer to some degree. But um, they're aware of their problem, and they're making preparations for a future where oil is going to cost more. We're speaking with Christopher Steiner. The book is $20 per gallon, How the Inevitable Rise in the Price of Gasoline Will Change Our Lives for the Better. And, and I have a confession to make right now. I've, I've always wanted gasoline prices to be higher. I wouldn't say always, always, but as soon as I become, became aware that this is something that's, we're going to run into peak oil, it made sense to me to, to keep the, the price higher so we have an easier landing when we run yeah. out. Right. Is is uh, are are we? How easy of a landing is it going to be? Do you think it's going to be smooth, or are we going to have some major bumps along the way? You know, I still think that's yet to be determined. And yeah. I, as you were saying, I think, um, and you may get some angry phone calls or emails or something after uh, admitting <laughs> uh, that you want the price of gas to go oh, higher. I said and, it and I and I and I and I, I uh, share your. Uh, feelings on that, but uh, that you know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and unhappy because they feel it's an attack on their way of life. And uh, I mean, but but the facts are that the price is going to go up either way. It's going to go up. Yeah. Now the question is, would you rather have that some of that money stay in our country, right, or would you rather send it overseas? And on a macroeconomic scale, uh, the transfer of wealth that we see right now from places like here in Europe going to places like the Middle East 
it's it's terribly destructive on our own economy. And uh, the question is, would you rather take your medicine now and have more of the money stay in the United States in the form of a gas tax and bring some of these changes in yeah. earlier, or would you rather take your medicine later and send more money to uh, places overseas that generally aren't very friendly toward us? Um, and, and personally, I'd rather take my medicine now and see that money come back and stay within our own country. And that, of course, would mean raising the gas tax, and that's kind of a political cyanide pill. So uh, it's hard to get Capitol Hill on that ball, even though I think a lot of politicians know it might be the best move, but it's also the move that won't get them reelected, so they don't do it. Well, Chris Steiner, you just identified something. You, you talk about it in your book, and that is that uh, the current uh, price uh, tax, I should say, on gasoline is... Is it 18.4 cents? That's the, that's the federal highway tax, federal yeah. High, mm-hmm. And that goes mm-hmm. basically to building roads, repl- you know, essentially uh, maintaining the infrastructure that we use uh, it, for, to drive our cars on. Now, that's right. uh, it hasn't gone up for many years. Now, what, what was it, in the 80s? That it was, yeah, it was, it was the early 90s. So early it's, 90s. It's, been, um, it's been a decade and a half, uh, at least, since that tax was instituted at 18.4 cents per gallon. And the problem is that it's a static tax. So they made up the tax uh, when gas was 90 cents or a dollar. And at that point, you know, it was 20% of the cost of a gallon of gas. It, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a pretty big tax. Yeah. But now gas is 3 or $4. And uh, the problem is that building all these roads takes way more money than it used to because basically the price of building a road goes up almost in sync with the price of gasoline because asphalt, of course, is just another petroleum byproduct in addition to the fact that all these machines, all these people, they all use gasoline to build. Construction is very tied to the price of gas. So just as the price of gas has gone up, and last year we saw a problem with the federal uh, highway fund, it went bankrupt, and it's going to go bankrupt again this year, probably next month, because as the price of gas went up to $4 last year, Americans drove 100 billion less miles than the year before. We've never, ever had a drop like that before. And in most years, we go up every year as far as the number of miles driven. Um, so we went down 100 billion miles last year, and that means that much less gasoline was purchased by, America, by the American public, and that means that much fewer tax dollars were brought in for the highway tax fund. So uh, right when the government needed more money, because building roads and keeping up our existing roads cost more because of the price of gas, they got way less. And so it's, it's this uh, just self-fulfilling failure of a tax. And, I mean, they have to figure out a way to fix this. I mean, the, the easy way is to just raise the gas tax. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the workaround that people are talking about is instituting, like, a tolling, tolling programs you know, all over the country on most roads, so people basically pay for the miles they drive. And I think the only reason people are talking about that is because it's more political, more politically pal- uh, palatable yeah. uh, than just raising the gas tax, which, of course, would cost a lot less money to do than instituting, you know, tolls everywhere. But as you described, yeah, the infrastructure required to to uh, to do the tolling is just incredibly oh, it, it, expensive. It, 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 it costs billions. Yeah, it costs billions. and and uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. On one hand, we want people to drive less, which right. is great, and that was actually a good, you know, sort of a uh, unexpected benefit from uh, from the rise in tax or uh, gas last year. But at the same time, uh, we 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 saw with the collapse of these bridges, and so we saw the infrastructure, the uh, highway infrastructure, beginning to really decay in the last couple of years. So we need more revenue for it. But I, I want to get some of the positive. Uh, mm-hmm. Things that you talk yeah. about in the book as well, which is really you, you emphasize a lot of the uh, the mass transit, the, the, the high speed trains. I want to talk a little bit about what's the tipping point for gasoline prices where this starts to really kick into a whole nother gear. 
Well, speaking about high-speed trains, I mean, uh, I think as soon as you start to see some of these airline networks fall and, and, and normal flights, even at, you know, prices of 400 or $500 really aren't available, that's when people are going to start demanding high-speed trains. And that's when the government and private enterprises have to start paying attention. That's when we'll start seeing places like uh, networks sprout up in the Midwest, you know, uh, from, and, and there's already, in most places, there are already organizations in place lobbying for high-speed rail. But the problem is that, you know, they don't have the pull or the money, but they will get it. And now out there in California, you guys well know, um, yeah. you, you guys have been on the brink for a long time, and of course... We passed the, uh, we passed a proposition to allocate right, the money. Right, exactly. And, you know, you could end up being the leader if they figure out basically how to pull this off. Uh, you know, and what a beautiful thing it would be to get on a train in L.A. and get off uh, just three hours later in San Francisco. I mean, how wonderful. Yeah. Or, or imagine getting on a train in Chicago and getting off seven hours later, you know, downtown Chicago, not out in the boonies at the airport, right here at Union Station, and getting off at Penn Station in midtown Manhattan seven hours later. Yeah. I mean, that'd be flying any day. Uh, so, you know, and that, that's something that other countries already have. It's not as if it's some space-age technology we have to figure out how to work. It's already out there. You know, we, just, we just have to – we just need the tipping point, the gas price, to put the demand out there to get it in. Cool. And uh, so I think that demand will sprout up around $8 per gallon. I think that's when you're going to start seeing high-speed rail become a reality in places like the Midwest, uh, the Southeast, and from like Florida, the, there'll be a network in Florida going up to Atlanta. Texas will have their own network, and then eventually, most of these networks will all connect to each other, giving us a nationwide network. Now, this, this is going to take decades, of course, but I do believe wholeheartedly that this will happen. Well, well, doesn't doesn't that also the, the other effect of this is a, a manufacturing industry and to build the, the rail system and the and the rail cars and maintain them? That's a huge, potentially a huge manufacturing boom to. Uh, to the U.S. economy, giant, and you know, I think, uh, and I think, you know, the companies who have the foresight to get on the ball, and I think, of course, GE will probably play a big role. They already make a lot of train cars um, and locomotives and stuff like that, uh, and of course, a lot of this stuff's built uh, in foreign countries because they're the leaders typically in high-speed rail. But there's no reason we can't build this stuff here. And of course, as the price of gas goes up, moving stuff all over the oceans becomes non negligible anymore. I mean, right now, you know, if you just talk about our food network, I mean, it, when I walk into a grocery store in Chicago and I want to buy an apple, I'm usually looking at apples from New Zealand or Washington State, and that's not just because they're in season. That's all year round. You know, they refrigerate these things. I, I mean, I got New Zealand apples in my grocery store all year, and that's because for some reason Safeway or Albertsons has figured out that it's cheaper to get a New Zealand apple into my grocery store in Chicago than to get an apple from southwest Michigan or southeast Wisconsin, which both our areas very close to here, that are full of orchards. Uh, but that's because of the price of gas makes it possible for them to do that. In the future, when I go to the grocery store, I'll see apples from southwest Michigan and southeast Wisconsin. Yeah, that's, that's really what appeals to me the most about $20 per gallon mm -hmm. gasoline, mm -hmm. is that it's bringing us a little bit closer to, to where we live. In, in just a lot of ways. It, it, it prevents us from just shooting off somewhere because, you know, we, we want to go on vacation to Europe or, or, the, or go coastal because it's cheap. It, it makes us appreciate where we are a little bit more, yeah. and, and uh, in not only economically but just how we, how we live day to day, how we appreciate it. And one of the more encouraging uh, things uh, you write about is, is that we'll be rid of Walmart, too. 
<laughs> well, you, you, yeah, well, in the context of we'll, we'll walk to where we've shopped yes. and we'll be more localized. Right. And will any of us really care? Well, you know what? We can have great concerts in those old in, – in, so we in, can put on some Walmarts? really – In yeah. those old Walmarts, <laughs> in the old decaying Walmarts, we can put on some great shows. we got to use those – they call those empty Walmarts. They call them ghost boxes. We're going we're gonna to have to use them for something, right? Yeah, so. yeah exactly. We'll, we'll store things in there, but yeah. – uh, you know, but. Uh, now there's there's just a lot of uh, you know as you said I think that the one of the app things that that you've said today is that uh, uh, we can plan now be prepared make it as the transition as smooth as possible because this is reality I think that's the thing that people have to understand this is not wildly speculative on your part to say that at some point in the not too distant future certainly within our lifetime gasoline will be prohibitively expensive maybe twenty dollars a gallon. If not, it'll be close enough to where it doesn't matter anymore. We need to make this transition. Certainly. I mean, big changes are afoot, even at prices of 6 or $8 a gallon. I mean, it's just it's a paradigm changer in many ways. All righty. Well, uh, the book is $20 per gallon, How the Inevitable Rise in the Price of Gasoline Will Change Our Lives for the Better. Christopher Steiner, thanks for writing this wonderful book, and thanks for being here on Weekly Signals. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.